Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, August the 12th, 2022. Friday, most of us don't work. I'm not sure if anyone works on a Friday on the West Coast particularly when it comes to local government in San Francisco. Uh, the city, of course, is beautiful. It remains as beautiful as it's ever been. But it also is the paradigm, if that's the right word, of dysfunctionality. The Economist just ran a piece suggesting uh, that San Francisco's city government is the epitome of dysfunctionality, it asks why. Uh, new uh, San Francisco Chronicle, our local newspaper, suggests that whilst um, uh, New York is roaring back from COVID, San Francisco isn't. So its dysfunctionality can't be entirely blamed on COVID, uh, as we tend to blame everything these days on COVID. Everything is wrong with San Francisco. There's not enough housing, lots of promises about building new housing units, 82,000 supposedly. San Francisco has five months to convince the state it can build those 82,000 housing units. One wonders whether they'll convince them. The local politicians are, and administrators are corrupt. Uh, the, the new DA now is under fire for six-figure disclosures. The police aren't much better. A lot of people don't believe that the police are at all accountable in terms of their racism and corruption. And even the pigeons are rotten out here. The San Francisco metro system has hired birds of prey to scare pigeons away. You can't make this kind of stuff up, or maybe you can in San Francisco, but it somehow captures the dysfunctionality of all forms of local government. My guest today is an authority on how to clean up local government, how to make it more effective, how to make it better. Um, his name is uh, Dean Schroeder. Um, and he is the co-author of Practical Innovation in Government, How Frontline Leaders Are Transforming Public Sector Organizations. He's joining us not from San Francisco, but from Northwest Indiana in Chicagoland. Dean, welcome. Um, Thank you, Andrew. What advice are you going to give our local polls out here in San Francisco? How can we make San Francisco a less dysfunctional place? Well, um what we focus on, what we did was we studied 77 different government organizations around the world, really, in five different countries, and looked at the ones that were really, had turned themselves around, that are real high performers in a practical sense. We're trying to stay out of the political. We're trying to stay out of the political, corruption, all that sort of stuff. And you stay out of the political, Dean, in local government? You certainly can't in San Francisco, for better or worse. Well, you can't stay out of it totally. You, I mean, nature of government is is political, but what we're talking about is how do you make the operating of government more efficient? Whether you want more government, less government, doesn't matter. You want efficient government. And so what we focused on is government organizations and finding out how they got to be really, in some cases, world class. They competed compared to the best private sector companies anywhere, and yet they're government. We don't think of government as being efficient. We somehow give them a buy on a lot of that. We complain a lot, but can it be fixed? And the answer is, uh, you bet. But the, the surprising thing is what we found is the answer is not in big, bold moves by the people at the top, but people in the, at the bottom. 
people that know their jobs, that know how things get done, that know how the garbage gets collected, that know how tickets get processed, that know how uh, how, how how to deal with uh, social service organizations, even teachers in some case cases. Even looking. I mean, I would think teachers would be very helpful. What about big tech? Um... Uh, Dean, um, one of the ironies of the dysfunctionality of San Francisco was on the edge of Silicon Valley, supposedly the heart, the global heart of innovation. And yet there's, there doesn't seem to be anything innovative about local government here. Tech um, is trying to innovate. They're trying to essentially disrupt it by, um, by, by, by figuring out a way of, of knocking them out of of the equation. Uh, Joshua Browder, for example, was on the show recently. He's an old friend of mine. He's the CEO of Do Not Pay, which enables people in Palo Alto and around the world to avoid paying their parking tickets. Is the problem, as people like Browder believe, is the problem the government structures themselves, or is that a, a libertarian conceit? <laughs> Well, let's take take these one at a time. The first question is, does technology help? Is it the solution? It's a tool, just like any other tool. And when used properly, it can be an accelerator or it can be very helpful. But just throwing technology at a bad system usually ends up in just complicating it even further. So technology is an plays an important role, but it's not the end all be all. You got to fix things first. You've got to got to figure out how the process should work before you automate it. Um, so tech is important, but it is not the answer. The answer is understanding the process. The people that deal with that process every day are not interestingly your 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 mayor, your your uh, city administrators at the top end. They're the folks that are oftentimes doing the work. And so how do you unleash all their creativity and energy to really innovate from the ground up? And then when you get that right, then you put the technology in and it really has an impact. It's interesting, actually, that your thinking is not that different from Silicon Valley thinking about democratization. What you're suggesting is that the way to make local government more more innovative is by democratizing it, by um, empowering everybody, not just the mayor or the head of the police. Absolutely. You think about it and, and, and you think of the mayor. Okay. The interesting thing about the mayor, what is his expertise? When you look at our elected officials and usually their expertise is at getting elected, it is not necessarily doing the job of the people that they are now uh, responsible for. And so the question is, how do you balance that big picture, big direction, political agenda, even in, in some cases, with the functioning on the day-to-day -day basis of delivering those goods, delivering on those promises. And that's where setting up systems and structures that allow more decisions to be made at the frontline level, not, not the big social decisions or policies, but just on how to deliver on those promises that the mayor or the aldermen are making. So coming through, that's the, the challenge. Anyone can promise anything. We've had so many promises in San Francisco about cleaning up government, getting rid of homeless encamp uh, encampments, um, doing away with corruption, making the police more accountable. The challenge, uh, as you say, Dean, it's obvious, is um, 
is 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 in the doing. That's what you argue in Practical Innovation in Government. You, it's an interesting book. It's full of all sorts of examples. One of the examples that caught my eye is the Royal Mint. What is it about the Royal Mint that speaks of local innovation in government, Dean? Oh, the Royal, Royal Mint's a classic. Uh, it's one of my favorite. Uh, um, we studied it over a six-year period, and it's one of our favorite uh, examples. We... Um, what makes the Mint special is, for one thing, it's one of the oldest organizations or organizations in the world, when you really think about it, in continuous operation, started over a thousand years ago. And, uh, you know, for, for, for gosh sakes, uh, Isaac Newton was in charge of the Mint at one time. And we should just note that the Royal Mint, of course, is based in London and it's, um, it's the local government um, English authority uh responsible for what the creation of currency is that fair dean that 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 that's correct for years and years the royal mint was located uh in or next to the tower of london more recently um it has moved out to wales and so it's 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 located in uh in wales of all places but it is also recognized as one of the premier mints in the world as a matter of fact, they can make coins that are almost impossible to uh, counterfeit. And they're one of the few that can. Um, but the thing that's nice about them is they're constantly learning. They're constantly incrementally improving. They're stealing ideas wherever they can get them. The latest business books, the latest business techniques, the latest uh, uh, other things. And then they're creating improvement systems themselves. And you go in there and anything that could possibly go wrong, they catch, they correct. And they often and they do it at the lowest level in the organization. Possibly. And Dean, can we credit this with do, 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 is this because of senior management? Is this is because of the architecture of the organization? Is this because they pay their people properly? Maybe they pay them in mint. Uh, what, what, what is the secret to all this? Maybe they take a bunch of pounds and put them in their pockets when they leave. Uh, no, actually, the security is is quite good. The and the answer is yes, it is because of senior management. Because every one of the senior managers that we interviewed started out as apprentices in the mint. And they knew where that expertise lay. And so they'd bring in the new ideas, they'd bring in the function, the resources, but ultimately the improvements being made oftentimes came at the frontline level. And how and do they keep, um, and this is a particular question in San Francisco because people hop in and out of government all the time. How do they keep their people? Is it by paying them properly, by treating them properly, by guaranteeing them that they'll be a career and they'll be able to move up the ladder? By treating them properly. They respect their people. They listen to their people. Their people can be heard. That's, that's, that's the secret, what we found. As a matter of fact, uh, we had a good story in, um, in Denver where the excise and licensing group, which gives licenses, about 80 different licenses to uh, uh, 100,000 people a year. There was a three and a half, there was about hour and 40 minute wait on average to get a license. The room was hot because the air conditioner couldn't keep up. So when a new leader took over that wanted to change this, she got her frontline people involved, trained them up. And all of a sudden they solved it in about 18 months. They went to practically nothing, seven minutes in a line uh, instead of an hour and 40 minutes. 
We could uh, we could certainly send our DMV bureaucrats to the there Royal Mint. I mean, is there is there any organization in I don't know whether it's in America, but certainly in California, is there any organization more dysfunctional than the DMV, Dean? <laughs> you know, the D, 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 DMV. I don't know how California is, but but we actually. Um, we actually saw in Arizona where we saw an exceedingly, exceedingly dysfunctional DMV uh, office where people would show up. They'd have to bring their their animals, their pets, their 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 kids, their grandparents, if they were looking after their grandparents, because they waited so long for a line. They pulled in uh, television sets. The homeless people sort of moved in uh, in the summertime because we're it's talking. Really, I mean, it's 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 funny, but it's also deeply depressing. Your book is not just, though, an excuse to bash American small towns and cities. Uh, Denver comes out of your book looking pretty good. Is Denver the mile high city? Is it also mile high in terms of innovation, Dean? It's it's done a fantastic job. It's done a fantastic job. I mean, they are the world. The, the, the big one of the stories that comes out of there is because Mayor Hancock, when he first ran for office, knew that the frontline folks were the ones that were could make the difference and set up structures to tap that expertise, turned around some of his departments and the performance was fantastic. But the funny thing was when marijuana came in, they were the first city in the world to legalize marijuana. We think of Amsterdam and stuff like that. Well, there's decriminalized. It was, it's been decriminalized for years, but it hasn't been legalized and licensed. So there was no meth, no um, model to follow, which maybe was a good thing because what they set up was a very innovative model that whenever there was a problem that was identified by the people on the front line that were out checking and and um, writing, uh, looking at the safety issues or whatever the issues was, whenever they spotted something, they'd bring it up to a central hub and then they'd pull together the people from the different departments that were needed to serve on it. They'd solve the problem. They'd pull in the private sector entrepreneurs and they'd come up with a solution because what you were dealing with is you were dealing with a situation where uh, these guys didn't even, couldn't even use banking because it was illegal nationally. Still, is still illegal nationally. So they had to solve a lot of problems fast, and they did a wonderful job to get out in front of it. Otherwise, marijuana and legalization of marijuana, Dean, of course, is an incredibly political issue. I mean, maybe yes. not so much in California or Colorado. We did a show recently about how the ideological cleavages of federal government now are seen at the local level. How does mm -hmm. a city like Denver, which uh, I assume is um, a democratic city, although Colorado isn't necessarily as hardcore a democratic state as California, how has it avoided um, ideological cleavages in terms of its management? I, I think the answer is it's when you have a well-managed local city with good leadership, um, you, you don't have the temptation to go to the ideological cleavages. When things aren't working as well is when you start getting that, that, that sort of excuse to butt heads and to blame the other guy. It's not saying, I'm not saying that doesn't happen in Denver. It certainly does. But it, uh, it has, uh, it, 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 and it's got its problems. Lord knows it's got its problems. Look at how fast it's growing. Um, but uh, uh, it just happens to have some some good operational government. That's not the political side. 
And uh, Colorado certainly is a uh, an interesting state with both uh, far right and far left, if you one can call the you know the cleavage. You got everything from from um, uh, extremely liberal uh, um, folks in Boulder and other places that would maybe even put California to shame in terms of uh, uh, progressiveness. And then you've also got folks out in the rural areas and other areas that are hardcore, um, conservative, traditional values, salt of the earth folks. So you, you've, the, you've got Dean, um, one of, and, 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 and there's every crisis in San Francisco. Your next book actually should simply focus on fixing San Francisco. Uh, one of, one of the great crises in San Francisco is the management, or perhaps more appropriate, the mismanagement of schools. I know in your book um, you focus on New Brunswick in, in Canada as um, a province which has addressed uh, education in a very innovative way. What are the, the people of New Brunswick in Canada? How are they innovating on the education front? We found that quite fascinating because what they did is New Brunswick as a whole set up a continuous improvement process that was right apart right apart of the way they managed from the top on down to all the different areas and where that spilled out in the school was kind of interesting because one of the uh, schools in a French uh, they, they have both an English and a French system in New Brunswick it's the only province that has two official languages the nation has two official languages but they're the only ones with the province that has two official languages, so they need two different uh, school systems. One of the schools in the uh, primary school in the French, one of the French sections was having a problem in that their uh, fourth graders were only passing French literacy at 22% of standard. So what happened was the, the principal was being trained in Six Sigma, which is a form of continuous improvement. And one of her requirements was to find a problem and fix it. So she looks at that and takes it on. I wouldn't have been that ambitious, to tell you the truth. But what she did, pulled the, the, the third, fourth, and fifth grade teachers together, the assistant principal formed a team, gave them the uh, uh, skills and the training to analyze what the problems were, and they attacked it. And you had, it was fascinating. They'd identify a problem and they'd come up with a solution. They had 160 60 uh, uh, improvements in the first three months. And what you eventually saw is the system went right into the classroom where you had third and fourth graders analyzing why they didn't do well in the test and what they could do to improve next time at a very specific level. And that result is in about 18 months, they went to 78% um, literacy from 22. That's huge. And it's incredible. Ideas then matter, both in terms of improving education and in local government. Uh, you're, of course, the author also of the best-selling book, The Idea-Driven Organization. So you know about the power of ideas. One um, institution that you deal with in a very intriguing way in your book um, is uh, an organization called Mind Lab in mm. Denmark. No book about innovation in local government probably would be complete, complete without something about the Danes. They always seem to know how to do things. Tell me about uh, Mind Lab. What is it and, and, and how do they teach innovation in local government? Mind Lab was an amazing place. Um, what, what they were was they were the, the original 
a policy institute or policy unit. They they tried to help with government policy. And what they did is they came up with a method or they applied a method. Actually, it's a, it's a, it's a method that I first ran into in Silicon Valley of all places at uh, IDEO was uh, an ethnographic study. So when a policy came out or was being considered, they'd go down and figure out what was the real impact of that on the people that were being served. It wasn't the political wrangling up here you know, at the top, you know, well, let's take that out and move that. No, you got a new policy. You get down there, you look at how that policy is going to uh, affect people. And then you make the policy based on that. And then once the policy is in place, you study, is it working? And you have a continuous improvement loop. Well, MindLab developed a very interesting process for doing this. And it was really quite, quite progressive. Now comes one of the nasty things about government regime change. You have different people with different agendas, and all of a sudden, the, uh, a new uh, regime came in and said, well, we want to shift to digitizing government. Right. So as one headline put it, uh, Denmark, Denmark lost its mind lab. Yep. It's really a shame. But the good part is when you talk to the people that were running and leading and involved in mind lab, what they said is it became such the new way of thinking, the new way of working became so common that it just lived on in the everyday operation of both communities and and sections of the government. So it was wasn't what they did has had long lasting effects. In its, and now there's something called Mind Lab 2.0, a next generation lab. So it hasn't gone away. Finally, um, Dean, you know, there's enough money out here in, in San Francisco. It's one of the richest places on earth, full of multi-billionaire tech tycoons of one kind or another. It's not really money, is it? I mean, I'm sure you could find people to set up a new an equivalent mine lab of San Francisco. What do the people of San Francisco need to do to fix their local government, to, to create innovation in government? Where would you begin? Begin in corners. Don't try to make a massive thing, but make the massive thing to support it. But find corners, little corners of government, little parts of operations. It might be a department here or a unit there and focus on improving them and then just grow out from there and learn from what they have learned. But the big thing is empower those frontline people in those departments, which means you have to have frontline leaders not frontline administrators. You need frontline leaders who can help their people and support their people and draw their ideas out and put them into operation. And these aren't big, massive ideas, at least at that level. But once you get all of the enough units at the frontline level working like that, then you can work your way up into cross-functional and other larger things and deal with them. But start in a corner. Don't, don't expect to just have a home run right away. You got to start one, one, one unit at a time and just bring it up, get that one stabilized and, and continuing to improve move, and keep moving on. There you have it. Not just San Francisco. Any, anyone who's living in a town, a city, a region, a province, which is poorly managed, which is probably most certainly of North America, need not just to go into a corner, perhaps go into a corner, but also get uh, Dean... Schroeder's new book that he wrote with Alan Robinson, Practical Innovation in Government. It's just out. Maybe not be the sexiest of book, but it's very important in terms of how to fix front 
line uh, organizations. It's core to the quality of life. We forget it. That's why living in San Francisco, I think these days, is in some ways extremely miserable. Dean, congratulations on the new book. What else? Um, Thanks, Andrew. Are you reading these days? Anything other other books to suggest to our viewers, our listeners? Well, you, you know, I'm I'm a funny one. I I love to draw lessons from history, and so I love to 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 read good historical pieces like like the the books of uh, Ron Chernow or David McCullough. And ironically, right now, because uh, we're going to be uh, um, a longtime dream of ours is to follow the Allied advance from D-Day to the Rhine. And so I'm rereading Citizen Soldier by um, Ambrose. And the irony, the things he talks about are the things I'm, we found in our research. And that's the importance of those frontline people. But you look historically and the problems we have today, classic. They were talked about by the uh, by the founding fathers. George Washington was worried about political parties dividing us too far. And so you can get some real insight and really some hope. And so that's what I focus on is is is, is reading a lot of historical um, well done historical books.